The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is for Revelation, <clears throat> verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, and the, sea, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, um, these are words spoken into darkness for us. For some of us, the way is clouded. We feel alone and so as we come to your word here this morning, we pray that the life that is, is in this text, you would pour that into us, help us to see what we can't see right now, help us to hold on to that which we struggle to grasp, and that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> Um, well, journey metaphors continue to come to mind for me as we near the end of the book of Revelation, and I think such metaphors are appropriate. Um, we are pilgrims, pilgrim people, a people on the way somewhere. In a sense, we are exiles. We have a home, but the home that we have now is not our home, not that for which we were created, our hearts. Um, and, and this is true whether we're Christian or not Christians, whether we profess faith in Jesus or don't. Our, our, there's a longing within, our, longing within our person for a greater land, a, a deeper connection, a fuller home. And as John unfolds these pictures to us in, his, in, this, in, the, in the book of Revelation, uh, they give us more and more a, a glimpse of that home. Uh, but that home for which we were created, we're not there yet. 
And sometimes uh, the way is hard. Barb and I have twice had the privilege of hiking to a place in the Smoky Mountains called Charlie's Bunyan. Um, if you've been there, you know how uh, phenomenal uh, it is, how gorgeous it is. Uh, the first time it was just, uh, just, just she and I uh, on our honeymoon, actually. Um, the last time we were with a bunch of our kids uh, and their friends. Now, it's arduous to get there on the way. There's much climbing up, especially unhappy if it's cold and rainy. Um, as the facial expressions on some of my traveling companions would reveal. I think I've shown you that picture before. It's one of the classic Greenwald photographs. Um, I cut out the one of me standing there with a big grin on my face and these guys like that. But eventually, eventually if you, if you take this hike, you break free of the uphill climb and the trail opens up onto the ridge. It's just you're walking along the ridge. You have vistas in both directions, but you're not there yet. You know, there's rest there. There's some comfort there. There's some joy there, but you're not at your destination yet. But because you're given an opportunity to rest, you can better anticipate it. Uh, and that's what passages like this, I think, are meant to do. Sure. There are still, for all of us, difficult and perhaps treacherous paths to follow. But let's rest for a moment. Let's take a breather. Let's know that the destination is there. Let's know that the destination is certain. Let, let's know that the destination is worth the wait. We are almost home. And the language of home is the proper image here. God, who was a, the covenant keeper, uh, he is the one who brings his covenant people home. And I know home, in, even of, in itself, is a, is a concept with which some of us have a complicated relationship. Home invokes images for some of us of, of happy places, safe surroundings, happy upbringings, embracing parents, and stable connections. Home is where we don't have to perform. Home is where we don't have to pretend. Home is where we know we can always go. Home is where we know we're welcome. It's a safe place, a place of emotional and physical and spiritual comfort. And I know that that is not the experience of all. Some of us wish we had a home to return to. We wish that the home that we hear about, the homes that we see uh, portrayed, whether on television, movies, or in, in other media, um, we wish that was ours. The idea, the very concept of home evokes um, a kind of warm memory and a sense of safety. And I think that's because we're all wired. We are all created to long for a place that we've lost. And so we imagine what home is to be in terms of that place that we have lost. Well, passages such as this are meant to remind us that we are not yet at home. They are meant to whet our desire as well as to assure us that our longing is not in vain. You are a pilgrim people. You long for the safe place where you are at emotional, physical, and spiritual rest. And the assuring message of the book of Revelation is, as I've already said, God, the covenant keeper, unvariably, inevitably, brings his covenant people home. He is bringing you home, Christian. Now, as we have noted, as we've worked our way through this book, 
John invites us to use our imagination, as all great works of art do. And so this morning, we are challenged to imagine what this home is to be and will be. And the first thing we need to see is that to which Elizabeth has already alluded. Home is not so much a where, but a who. Home is the people of God, consummated, brought together, finished, so to speak. Home is not simply a where, but a who. John continues to unfold for us his series of visions. So we're in verse 1 of chapter 21. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, with this, we're clearly in his mind, it appears that we're clearly leaving the time and space of our own current existence and moving into a picture of something other. It's a picture of eternity. We're told that in this reality, all things are new. The nature of that newness is debated, as is everything in the book of Revelation. But the context suggests that the material nature of this new heaven and new earth and its degree of continuity with what we now experience as physical heavens and earth is not the issue. The physical nature, the particular nature of where we end up is not what it is issue. The new heaven and the new earth is this frame into which God paints something that is understandable, is concrete, and is beautiful. The point is not the where, but the who. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, Everything has an an old uh, conception here, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, but this is something new. And to speak of a city... Here, the new Jerusalem does evoke the idea of place, but what we're told is that this city is dressed or prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the bride. This is the bride of Christ. This is the people of God, the gathered people of God, the covenanted people of God. This bride is the church. This is you. This is you and all others of faith. The new heaven and the new earth is the spatial environment of heaven. The new Jerusalem is the population of heaven. The Jerusalem that populates the new earth is the gathered and full number of God's elect. It is the people of God. In the portion that we're going to look at next week, starting at verse 9, we read this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I'll show you the church. That language of bride has been used repeatedly throughout the New Testament to speak of the church. Now come, I'm going to show you the bride. And so what is he showing? Verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Um, God is speaking here of those who are in closest relationship with himself and he's using the imagery of this city that is most closely associated with his presence. The city of Jerusalem was where the temple was. The city of Jerusalem was where God's presence had been manifest in, in, in a very unique and special way. This closeness, this interconnection, this center point of God's covenant people 
is used to, to reflect the coming into this spatial environment of the new heavens and new earth, the completed, full, perfect people of God. This text is not about the architecture of heaven. It's about the population of heaven. And heaven is populated with the covenant people of God. We noted last week that the population of heaven are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And who are they? Those are the ones who are trusting in Jesus. Oh, yes, and many of us who are trusting in Jesus are those who are mixed up and messed up and confused. That many of us, of us who trust in Jesus stumble along the way and we falter and we fail and we make bad and selfish decisions, but our hope in heaven is not rooted in our actual performance but it is rooted in Jesus Christ and our trust in Him as the one who at the center point of Jerusalem gave His life that we might through Him have our sin taken away, obliterated, and we be brought into His presence. We are the people of the new covenant along with all of those others throughout time and space who have trusted in Jesus Christ. That's who is being pictured here as coming in to the new heavens and new earth. You know, we come to the Lord's table on Sundays as we gather together, and we come as a diverse people, as a broken people, and sometimes as confused people. But through the grace of God, we are the people of God, and we don't come to the table alone, but we come with one another. That's the picture here. We are coming into an eternity together with all the assembled gods of God's people. But it's not every human person, and that's the troubling part of this text, but we can't ignore it. Excuse me. Because our text in verse 8 does make the distinction and say, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I don't, again, want us to get lost in the particulars we're not, we don't need to get lost in the particulars. Let's not get lost in what actually this imagery is used to, to convey. Uh, nor let, let's not treat this list as some kind of uh, list of exclusions. You know, you get this ad, you know, 25% off any purchase, and then the fine print says, accept the very thing you want to buy. Um, I mean, that's not what this is intended to be. Uh, the point is there are those who will refuse the covenant. There are those who will dismiss the opportunity of life. There will be those who will refuse to humble themselves and to, 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 to communicate to Christ their need of, of His salvation. And they will not rest their hope in Jesus. This is a caution we all need to take to heart. Um, you know, if you've grown up in the church, if you've heard these things since you were we. Uh, don't reject your covenantal privileges. That's what this is saying. Don't reject those opportunities. Don't reject what has been poured into you. Um, if Christianity is something that you've never really encountered or embraced, maybe it's something you're investigating, maybe it's something you're toying with, uh, do so no longer. Take hold of Jesus by faith. This covenant offers something beautiful, and we'll get more into that as we go. It's a life that is precious. But it's a life that's mediated through Jesus. You who trust in Christ, you are this holy city. Your future is that you will one day be home. You will gather with the saints, these saints, 
and those from every time and place. And you will gather in the new heavens and new earth, just as surely as you gather here this morning. You will be home. Now, the knowledge that one will get home when one is not at home does not remove whatever pain we might have, and it only to some degree assuages the longing. As I said, there are still treacherous steps along the way, and some of us bear the weightiness of that reality. Nevertheless, you need to know your future is secure. You will, in time, be home. That longing in your heart will be satisfied. You will come together in joyful relationship for eternity with all of those others who have loved Jesus. And this does not fix all the problems around us, but perhaps for just a moment, just now, it takes your eyes off the unpleasantness of the journey and fixes them on the inevitable goal. Hope is the people of God consummated. Now there's beauty in what this means. And we need to see that as well, because home as well as the covenant of God completed. You know, sometime, you know, I was thinking about this. Okay, so I've just told you that you're going to gather with these myriads of people, thousands upon thousands of people in joyful assembly, and it's an introvert's nightmare. So maybe this isn't something that particularly appeals to you. But it's important to remember that the, the, that, that the who of heaven not only are all of those who trust in Jesus, but the who of heaven includes the author of heaven. Heaven will be good and heaven will be glorious and heaven will be home because God will be there in the complete fullness and fulfillment of his covenant promises. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, all the voices in Revelation are loud. I have to think about that for a while. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. <clears throat> you know, I think we need to notice here not just the fact of God's presence, but what is said about his presence. He is there in a favorable way as the culmination of all that he has promised throughout Scripture regarding his covenant with his people. And I use the word covenant, and I know that for some of us the word covenant may be unfamiliar. It is the means by which God has chosen to engage with his people, to enter into relationship with his people. And the Bible teaches that this is how God is engaged with his creation uh, since, the, since the beginning. He moves into a formal relationship with his creation through covenant. And at the heart of that covenant is his declaration, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. There is a level of commitment in that, right? I will be your God. And there's a level of response, and you will be my people. Um, if, we, if we go back uh, you know, near to the beginning, God uh, chooses uh, Abraham out of among the nations, and, or Abram as he was called at that point. And he announces to Abram his intention to build a people out of him, 
a people that would be uh, uh, um, the, the recipients of his favor. And we read particularly in chapter 17, verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God, that is his commitment to his people, Abraham. And Abraham, we read, is one who was... He was, a, he, was, you know, he was chosen by God and put in this unique position, but also the faith of Abraham is, is how that relationship was sustained and how he, his, he received this covenant. He embraced this covenant, just as you do as well, through faith, receiving this covenant, this commitment and promise of God to be a God to you. God keeps His promise. And He, he, he keeps it in ways very uniquely um, in that when his people find themselves in trouble, when they are in bondage, when they're captivated, he invokes the, 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 the language of this covenant when he comes to rescue them. We, we get um, into Exodus and the people of God have been whisked off into slavery. They are in bondage and misery in Egypt. And, and, and so God calls upon Moses to be his vehicle for their deliverance. And he tells Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Notice God saying, I'm going to, I know your way is treacherous. This pilgrimage that you're on has been difficult, fraught with, with agony and pain and, and frustration. But he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I mean, that's significant. God is keeping his covenant, you see. He is keeping his covenant to be a God to them. And as a, as a result of that, he delivers them out of Egypt and brings them into his promised land. Okay, but then they grow lax and they rebel against him. And so God finds that he has to send them into exile. And so they are captured by Babylon and they are taken off into Babylon. But God never intends for his people to continually be in slavery. And so he speaks to them in their, in their bondage. Um, and promises to, re, you know, not only to, uh, to stay committed to his covenant, but also to renew that covenant. In Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 33, and we could read a lot here, but just this, this is the covenant, he says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. We read earlier of God's promise to bring people uh, in, 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 from Jeremiah 29, that his plans for his people were plans for good, to pull them out of their exile and to bring them home. And he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Uh, I want you to see this is the nature of the God we serve. This is not simply 
um, a, a, a disconnected, isolated, uh, cre you know, a, a deistic kind of person or entity that is somehow uh, infusing uh, the, the time of the world with, with function, uh, functionality in life. This is a God who has chosen to enter into a personal relationship with his people. He has made commitments to you and he will fulfill them. So look again at verse 3 where we hear that you know, this loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's, a con that's a, the, the consummation of this covenantal promise. I will be a God to you and your people. What should you take from this? God is never going to give up with you, on you. Wherever your life has led you, God intends to still bring you home. God will not abandon his purposes. He has never in the past and he never will in the future. You are the people of God. And, and as our God, he takes those who have no home or feel that the idea of home is something that they will never wrap their minds around, and he gives it to us. He gives us a home prepared for us. Your image of God may be skewed. You know, when I'm at a traffic light, I don't know about you, when I'm at a traffic light and a police officer pulls up behind me and I see him in my rearview mirror, I suddenly get tense. And I wonder, what am I doing? I'm going to make a mistake. He's going to be upset with me. I'm going to get pulled over. Not that I have any experience with that whatsoever. Um, it's when I don't see them that that happens. But I don't want to have a relationship with him. Okay? I don't. Because my conception is this is the enforcer. This is the one who's looking out to wait for me to make a mistake so he can nab me. <laughs> and that's the image of God too many of us have. As a celestial officer in our rearview mirrors, anxious and eager to catch us doing something wrong, and we don't want a relationship with that God, and that's not the God of the Bible. The God who has come into our lives to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. I am your God. I want to have a relationship with you. And so committed to that am I that I will even reach into those situations in your life where all is lost and all is hopeless. I'll bring you out of it. I'll walk with you in those times. And when, when, when time is ended, I will create a space where you will be with others of like mind and I will be with you. And that is what we look forward to. As, as, as Elizabeth mentioned in, in Eden, we read of Adam and Eve you know, walking with God in the cool of the day. Um, you know, in the history of, of, of the Jewish nation, we see God hovering near his people in the temple. But the future for you, your future, is to be with this God in a, in a most intimate way as the church with him is as a bride to groom, arm in arm, safe, secure, and beloved. And his promises never fail. Home is the people of God consummated, yes, but it's just not just other Christians who are in, in that home, but it is God who has fulfilled and sustained his covenant is there as well. And the experience of this then, the experience of what that means is so beyond us that we hardly know how to conceive it because here we see the character of God fully comprehended. Now we are conflicted in this life often. Uh, we struggle to understand the ways of God. Um, yeah, this little hole doesn't give enough liquid. Excuse me. <coughs> um, we're not alone in that, in, in, in that, in, in, 
struggling to understand the ways of God. I hope you know that. The book of the Psalms are just full of the psalmist crying out, why God, why, why, why? <coughs> Sometimes we even struggle to believe that God is good. Is he good or is he evil? You know, why would he do this to us? It's not wrong to raise the questions and to stare into that darkness. But here we come to the end of the story and the God we meet is the God that is truly the same from one end of the Bible to the other. He is a God of great compassion. As David prayed, you know, his love endures forever. Here is the God who rules and continues to create. We read, behold, I am making all things new in verse 5. We read that he is one that is, excuse me, not bound by time. He says in verse 6, you know, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, God is over all time, over all creation. He sees the interconnectedness of all things. He alone understands the role and place of the brokenness we experience. He understands the role and place of sin that weighs so heavenly, uh, heavily on many of us. He understands the connectedness and place and of the unhappiness of everything that sin and guilt and death and brokenness touches. But God is making all of that new. And what he makes is clearly not simply Eden remade. And I think this is also important for us to see. This is not what, this, what God is making here. This new heavens and new earth is not Eden the sequel. It's not Eden round two. Okay? What he makes is new in one very particularly important way. When Jesus died, the fabric of the cosmos was changed. Our sin was taken away. His righteousness was given to us. That was last week's message. But it really is the message that is the heart of everything. The new heavens and the new earth differ from the first in this key point that where in Eden... Sin was possible in the new heavens and new earth. It is not possible. There will be no sin. It has been taken away. It has been fulfilled, completely uh, overcome by Jesus. Sin has been judged, condemned, and cast out. And so when we as the people of God land in the new heavens and new earth, it will be life as has never been experienced before and nevertheless will be as real as the dirt under our feet and the sun and the moon and the heavens above us. It is so wonderfully new that we don't have the categories to, uh, to, 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 to explain it or understand it. You know, sometimes I look at this and I think I'm not nearly as emotive about this as I should be, but it, perhaps it's, it's that I really don't know what to do with things that are so totally new. You know, way back when, when I, when I would refuse to eat strawberry shortcake as a kid, I didn't have the imagination sufficient to conceive of its goodness. And I don't think we have the imagination uh, sufficient to really conceive of the goodness of what God is envisioning for us. So John tries to tell us. First of all, uh, identify in your own heart the deepest ache and longing and lack. You know, that's your thirst. What do you thirst for? Uh, you know, what, what thirst is drying your heart and withering your soul? Because what he's trying to tell us here is that thirst will not be forever. In time, look at verse 6. He says, 
um, you know, uh, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment freely. I am going to satisfy that thirst. To be given what is needed without payment is a gift, a grace, which we often don't, don't know how to handle. But that deepest thirst of your heart will be satisfied. And he goes on. This is a space newly created by the eternal God to fulfill our deepest longings for those who are called his people. And it's a new thing where, as we read in verse 3, that God himself will be with them as their God. But again, what does it mean to have God with us as our God? What does it mean to be with God in this way? Again, I think we lack imagination for it, but you've heard it. Hear it again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I have pondered what to say in, in, in response to that. I don't think there's anything I can say. This is life without death, where sin has been banished. The former things have passed away. That is death, sorrow, weeping, pain, separation, dysfunction, alienation, hurt, unhappiness, despair. These are not the norm for we who live where these things have not passed away, right? These things are still very real for us. But there'll be no more. And not in an impersonal way, somehow. So personally will be these things be taken away. That the writer of Scripture says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is the one who does it. This isn't the natural progression of the universe as we observe it. This is God fulfilling His covenant making all things new. This is our bridegroom lifting us from our crumbling existence, creating a home for us, and carrying us across the threshold, wiping the tears from our eyes, enabling us to see something new, a place where all that which is broken and sad will no longer be broken and sad. Rest your heart there, child of God. This is your future. Home is the people of God, consummated the covenant of God, completed, and the character of God comprehended. And yet we wonder, our hearts wonder if we'll ever get there because we're despairing. We're faced with very immediate sadness. And we can't see clearly enough to even hope. But please hear this. You who trust in Jesus, you're heading home no matter how long that will take, no matter how much of a failure you feel you are, no matter how much shame you've encountered, nor how alone you feel, it's a journey. We stumble along the way and we fall, but in the end it is real, it is yours, and it is good. I've got to tell this story that I came across this week. David Marinus and his bio of the Native American athlete Jim Thorpe tells a story from the 1912 Olympic Games the marathon event, one of the favorites was this guy, um, a Japanese distance runner named Shizu Kanakuri, if I'm coming close to that. 
But there was a mystery associated with this man who started the race and didn't finish. And in fact, the last third of his course, nobody can remember seeing him. It was years later when the facts emerged that somewhere in the middle of this race, he had collapsed and stumbled. It was an unusually hot day and the conditions overcame him. Apparently, there was a family along the route that was having a party. They brought him in. They took him in. They revived him. And then they sent him on his way, but the shame was too great for him. Kanakuri would not return to the course. He caught a train, zoomed into Stockholm, and the next day he left for Tokyo. Didn't tell anybody. Now, in these Olympics, King Gustav of Sweden awarded the medals. He would place a wreath on the a victory on the top of the winners and you know, award the gold or bronze or silver. Kanakuri, who once dreamed of that, abandoned that hope. But you know what? In a sense, and I'm going to embellish the story a little bit here to say the king went out and found him. As Marinus tells the story, it was March 20th, 1967, 52 years later, when Swedish officials invited him back to the race, I'm going to say the king invited him back because that's cooler. And he did just that, running the unfinished leg of the marathon at age 75. His recorded time was 54 years, 246 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. I think even I could do a marathon in that time frame. But I tell the story because some of us feel like we have stumbled and fallen, and we feel shame for that, we want to hide, we begin to despair, we give up hope, we think we'll never cross that finish line, but your king still intends to crown you with a wreath. He is a covenant king, and even if that means he has to come to find you, even if that means he has to come to earth to get you, he is summoning you home. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not neglect it. Home is where you want to be. The finish line is real. Put your trust in Jesus. The God who is your God will welcome you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your immeasurable faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that we would, this morning, as your people envision this city coming down, that we would see ourselves as pilgrims coming home, and that we would embrace with joy the final shalom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.